Lord, we thank you for the words of scripture that give us wisdom for our day. Open our hearts and minds to hear what you're saying to us, your people, this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. It is a stirring image, isn't it? Uh, the, the armour and the battle. And uh, we love a good battle. There's lots of movies made about battles and stories told and it's very much a part of life because we believe in the right to defend ourselves, don't we? And it's an instinctual thing. We like to defend ourselves, it's appropriate and so forth. And Paul doesn't challenge any of that idea. What he does do is focus on an entirely different kind of threat. So uh, most of our battles are against flesh and blood, aren't they? If you think about a battle, we think about conventional weaponry, we think about fights, uh, could be a fight at the pub, could be all kinds of things, but we think of somebody or some people who are there that have flesh, they have blood, they're tangible, they use maybe steel and gunpowder or chemicals or all sorts of things. Um, even in the past we had uni- uniforms to, to know which side we were on in the battle. It was very, very, very clear. But Paul, Paul talks about a different kind of opponent. One who doesn't have a uniform on, one who doesn't necessarily work in the ways that uh, most battles we're accustomed to work. He talks about the accuser. The devil, the one who roams around making accusations against us. He brings hostile charges against us, constantly putting us on the defensive, manufacturing a generalised sense of guilt. Anyone ever experienced a generalised sense of guilt? Yeah? There's a great line in a Billy Bragg song that I always look at. It's, I know that I'm guilty, I just don't know what I've done. (laughs) And it's often the case. Uh, And the accuser is very, very effective at this because actually none of us are innocent. It's like saying to a room of people, someone in here has sinned, you know. The Spirit's told me someone, well, it's a pretty sure bet because we all have. And uh, the, the accuser has a very good time accusing us because there's always something we can legitimately feel a sense of guilt about. We're just not sure what it is. And uh, that generalised sense of guilt also is very effective because it distracts us from the things that we could actually attend to. I'll give you a... Uh, bear with me on this uh, illustration, but... You know there's a Royal Commission going on at the moment into unions and the Royal Commissioner has uh, suddenly become seemingly compromised in the eyes of some because he was appointed by a Liberal government to look into unions, traditional Labor territory, and uh, he was invited, the, the Royal Commissioner was invited to a Liberal Party fundraiser to be the Speaker. So now there's a bit of a furor around whether this guy is actually going to be objective, fair, da-da-da-da. Now, there'll be lots and lots of tossing and throwing and people wanting to make political gain about that, but what's the issue that the Royal Commission was designed to look at? Oppressive, coercive structures in business and in unions. They're weighty issues. They're important issues that actually affect people's lives and what they get paid and how they live each day. 
we probably never get to those. We'll stay at the level of tossing around about whether the Royal Commissioner was right or wrong to be in the role and da-da-da-da. And the weighty issues never get attended. It's a little bit like that, I think, when we have a generalised sense of guilt. We feel bad, we're not sure why, and go around with our shoulders stooped or trying to do other things to get ourselves out of this generalised sense of guilt, but we don't ever stop and think about what's actually going on in my life. Am I guilty of something? Is there something I should attend to in my life? Paul talks about uh, our struggle not being against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness. It's very dramatic kind of language, and uh, we could be prone to think that it's a bit overdramatic, but rulers and powers and world forces become embodied in structures and culture. So even though those things all seem to float off up in the ether somewhere, rulers and powers and world forces are things that actually impact us every day when we get up in the morning and turn on the radio or go out and buy the newspaper or engage with people in the street. They're real, but in a virtual way. Bear with me with this. I've got a few tricky illustrations this morning, but... The nature of this is that um, these things exist and have a real impact on us, but you can't kind of shine a spotlight directly on them because when you try to do that, they disappear. It's a bit like um, racism, for example. So racism exists in one sense. We all know it does. We're all racist in one way or another. But it's hard to really get down to the nub of what racism is. It's kind of something that exists where two people come together and share a prejudice and they don't look at the reality of what's going on, they make a whole bunch of assumptions. But how do you find that? Well, it's actually a a relational dynamic. It's a virtual reality, if you know what I mean. Not sure? Okay, I'll give you an even tougher one. I think the most challenging example of world forces of this darkness uh, challenging our belief in the kingdom of God and you'll probably accuse me of being a communist but I'm not because I don't believe in communism either but global capitalism at the moment is a world view it's not even a world view because no one believes in global capitalism they just do it it's a thing that holds us and holds relationships international relationships business relationships everywhere And it does not exist except as a bunch of assumptions that we no longer question. They are unquestionable and unquestioned assumptions about the way life works, the way business works, what's most important, how we engage the world. And yet these assumptions influence everything. They control so much of our lives There's no actual thing there. It's just an agreed way of operating and relating. Does that make sense? If you're struggling with this, it's possibly because it's so assumed we can't imagine anything else. So, for example, when we had the global financial crisis a couple of years ago, governments 
poured billions of dollars into private banks so that the banks didn't fail. Because if the banks failed, the system would fail and we don't have another one. And we didn't know what would happen. That's how important it is. Now, did anyone suffer in that transaction? Well, yes, lots of people lost homes. Uh, Lots of poorer countries had uh, aid and, and support withdrawn. The Australian government, for example, cut its aid budget to almost nothing. And we used to support loads of programs, really worthwhile programs in all parts of the world. There were real impacts. And so when there is a a way of engaging that holds something up as more important than those who are made in the image of God, and you know who I'm referring to there? Every human being. Every human being made in the image of God. And yet in our world today, more people believe in capital than anything else. Now they don't have a a dictum that says that, there's no religion that supports it, but in terms of the effectiveness of what we respond to, what controls our behaviour, that's the greatest God there's ever been and it's not a new one. That makes sense. Do you think I'm a communist? I don't believe in communism either. (laughs) I believe in more than, more than capitalism, more than communism. I believe in the kingdom of God as God's spirit is a thing that determines our value set. So I think the struggle against these world powers, these forces, they get embodied in structures. They're not real things because, again, global capitalism, what is that? It's nothing except an agreed way of functioning. And that holds us in a particular way. Whenever there is uh, a thing that is an, a shared set of assumptions that can no longer be questioned or is no longer questioned, that uh, does something that um, disregards the image of godness of people, I think we're now talking about the sort of stuff, the world forces of darkness, the wickedness in heavenly places. I think that's the nature of those sorts of forces. So Paul talks to us about the kind of protection we have in relation to those world forces. And he gives us some armour. And it's interesting because if you read that passage and look for the word stand, it occurs three or four times, maybe five. It's in the whole passage. The main thrust is stand. Stand firm. Um, A couple of years ago in Manly, when Wei was about this big, and she's still quite slight, you can see how little she is, uh, a winter storm came through. And uh, there's a, a street... Belgrave Street in Manly that goes down, faces the wharf, sort of due south. And when the southerlies come up and a big wind comes up there, you come past the council chambers and it's like you go, whoa, the wind just picks you up. And she literally took off down the street. I had to grab her and hold her because the wind was so strong, it just took her away with it. That's the kind of force Paul has in mind when he talks about standing firm. 
There are forces that want to take us away with them. And in one sense, the most easy thing in the world is just to go along. One of the things about uh, being social beings as we are, our survival depends on being part of a group. And so we're very attuned to working out what the group is doing. We do it in ways we don't even know we're doing it. All sorts of subtle body language and tone of voice stuff and working out what the group values are and trying to position ourselves in the middle so that we're not the outlier, we're not going to be left behind or go too far ahead and all that sort of stuff. And so we're kind of genetically, biologically, whatever, programmed to go with the flow of the herd for our survival. Nothing good or bad about that. It just is. It's just a thing. I think Paul is saying to us, we have to have an appreciation that is stronger than just going with the flow. To understand something that is bigger than a pack mentality. Because having a pack mentality is easy and in a sense it's natural. But the the spirit, the kingdom calls us beyond there. And uh, Jesus was quite forthright in pointing out how inherently vulnerable this makes us. Because if we stand against or stand firm when everything is going that way, you do become the outlier. You do become the odd one. And uh, Jesus said some things about that. He said, uh, take up your cross and follow me. He didn't say, grab your Chardonnay glass and come and party with me. His imagery was, take up your cross. He said, if they do this while the branch is green, imagine what they're going to do when circumstances get tougher. If they treat the teacher like this, imagine what they're going to do to his followers. Those sorts of things were very much there. And Jesus knew he was inviting people to not just go with the flow and to deliberately become vulnerable. That's part of the nature of the kingdom. That's why we need defensive apparatus because we're going to be vulnerable. So what does Paul offer us? These kinds of things. Truth, righteousness, faith, salvation. These are the protective things that we've got as we go into this vulnerable place. And these things are not external things. They're things that are formed within us, which you could argue makes them the the best possible of all protections because they are within us. They guard our essential self. Paul doesn't mention any conventional weapons. He does talk about the sword, but that's the sword of the spirit. We'll get to that in a moment. He doesn't say build a wall or withdraw from the rest of the world. He doesn't say go and attack or any of those sorts of things. He says, take your stance which will be counter to the flow. You see, mobs get a mentality or packs get a mentality. Cultures can get a mentality. And they are more interested in a particular story, propaganda, rather than the truth. So we've got to put on truth. When we hear the the commonly accepted story, we don't, don't just go along with it. We stop and go, okay, I hear lots of people saying that. How true is it? Is that just the Murdoch press? 
or is it just the left wing whatever or how true is it we are to be people of truth not of the uh, predominant story not of what everyone else is saying we don't just do the gossip thing and echo back what we've heard we listen we discern we find out what is actually true about that that's a bit of work sometimes hard to find maybe you can't always do it but don't become the propagator of just the flow that's tantamount to gossip mobs packs cultures sometimes even nations look for loyalty you've got to go with them you've got to be one of us paul talks about righteousness in a sense righteousness is a loyalty to all of humanity not to a smaller group packs and mobs small groups say want you to be one of them you know prove whose side are you on you know team australia all that sort of stuff what if i'm on the side of every person what if i think everyone has a right to food and shelter and education what side am i on then am i still on your side not loyalty so much as righteousness loyalty to humanity um, mobs want what they are doing to be the exclusively understood reality when a pack mentality gets going they, they just get absorbed in their thing and what they're doing and they want you just to be absorbed in that and go with it faith always is aware there is a larger reality outside of the one we might be caught up with and we find this in our own lives you don't need a pack to get caught up in a small story you know something happens the computer shuts down we can't get it going again and suddenly it's all about getting the thing happening and that can become our whole story for a few moments faith says no there's a bigger story going on it invites us to to come out of that mob mentality that focused thing mobs actually want you to feel insecure the pack mentality is you need me so you can't diss me so you there's a certain insecurity that is part of that and that's why uh, governments politicians at the moment seem to be quite good at raising all the threats we want you to feel like you need us paul says no you are saved you are secure you don't have to feel under threat and that gives you the capacity then to think more independently not get caught up in needing to be like everybody else because you feel the insecurity of that and there's some big ideas i think i don't know if you want to take me on you can if you like i have a coffee afterwards <laughs> paul goes on to say that uh we also have our feet shod with the readiness of the gospel what does that mean well this is what i think it means i think the gospel makes it really clear that the current state of affairs is not the ultimate state of affairs the way things are now is not the way things will always be and there's some passages particularly in mark's gospel if you look at chapter 13 where there's prophecies of cataclysmic upheaval 
wars, rumours of wars, famine, earthquakes, floods, the stars falling from heaven. And these are all images that talk about how everything, everything we think is absolutely stable, the earth we stand on, the stars up in the sky, everything is going to shift. And the Gospel makes that clear. It says the first will be last. That kind of thing. If we believe the Gospel, we're ready for that. We're ready for the shift. We're not so embedded in the status quo, the culture as it is now, that as things shift, we can't go with the kingdom. That's our calling, to go with the kingdom, not to be fully rooted in the structures of now. Two minutes to go with the offensive weapon. <laughs> the offensive weapon is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Now, if you've been around church for a while, you would have heard lots of different illustrations about this. And uh, people often hold up their big fat Bibles and go, This is the Word of God. This is the sword of the Spirit. Da, da. And it's true because in the Scripture we hear the story of God and God's people. And in that we hear the voice of God. And we are called out of the everyday into something that is quite remarkable. But there's all sorts of opportunity for misuse in that. And uh, someone told me early on in my Christian life, a guy once preached a sermon and its title was Top Knot Come Down. And apparently back then, it was in the 50s I think, there was a hairstyle called a top knot. And uh, it lifted the hair of the woman up on top of the head, exposing their very sensual neck. And this preacher got a verse out of the Bible. You didn't know this verse was in the Bible, did you? Top knot, come down. And he preached a sermon about women not wearing the top knot hairstyle. You know what that verse is? It goes, let he who is on his rooftop not come down. (laughs) He was preaching from the Bible. Top knot, come down. That's a a ridiculous example, but it is an example of the way you can misuse Scripture. And really when we're going into the Word of God, we're hearing a message that is counter to the message of the accuser. It is the message of God's love. It is the message of the assurance that you are saved. It is, I think, the most threatening message of all, because this is the message that cuts through the generalised sense of guilt and gives us the opportunity, knowing that we are saved, knowing that it is now safe, to look at what's really going on. And what's really going on is quite confronting. That's why it's a very confronting message. There's some beautiful stuff here about prayer, pray at all times. I defy anyone to explain how prayer works. I know it changes me. I know it changes situations. I know that Robin came over here and prayed for the computer and it started after that. I don't know how. I know it happens. Prayer is not for the understanding It's for the doing. It's for the cry of the heart. And it changes things. It changes us. It changes groups. It changes circumstances. Pray without ceasing. And even Paul, the most forthright of all the evangelists of the New Testament period, he says, pray for me that I might be bold. What? (laughs) Could you be any bolder? (laughs) And yet he says that I will... 
carry this responsibility and preach it with all that it is worth. Because I can't do it on my own. Paul knew. Paul knew how foolish it would be to step out and stand against the flow in his own strength. So he asked for prayer. So I give you the armour of God this morning, or Paul gives you the armour of God this morning, so that we can resist those forces that would just sweep us along, so that we can stand and not be swept along, so that we can stand in faith, in truth, in righteousness, in our salvation, being ready to move as the gospel comes to all its fruition and changes society and being ready also to cut through the crap with the truth of God, the word of God, the reality that we are saved and loved and we can do business with that reality. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you know well our situation. You lived as one Uh, righteous according to the kingdom ways in a world that did not understand you and eventually rejected you. We thank you that your truth, your reality, your kingdom, your life is stronger than that rejection and that death and you rose again and call us into your life. And thank you that you give us all that we need to do that successfully. Help us to understand those places where we are just going with the flow. Help us to put on this armour that will equip us to stand to the glory of your name. Amen.